Okay, so we have one hour, and we have more questions than we had yesterday. So we're going to try, and I'm going to try hard to keep us within that hour. The reason for that is, if we don't, we're going to cut out some of your prayer time. And I understand that some of you already feel like your prayer time is short enough. So we're going to try and do that. Uh, I may, there may be a few uh, questions that I'll just simply refer to my panel. In fact, there will be some of those. And also, uh, we would enjoy hearing from even more of you today. I know we heard from a number of you yesterday, on, and uh, quite a few of you uh, didn't actually respond, so we want to encourage you as well. So think about that, and uh, I know how it is. There are people that are qu- uh, quick and easy to speak, and there are others who takes more time for them to get their thoughts together, and so we want to encourage you to, we want to hear from We'd be glad to hear from more of you, put it that way. So, All right, let's begin with prayer. Brother Earl, would you be willing to lead us in a prayer here before we begin? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity together to answer some questions that are in the hearts of the young people. And we pray, Lord, your spirit be here and grant us the wisdom and the uh, the truthful to be truthful and and honest with the questions so lord i pray you would guide us in this next hour and bless us lord in a way that will uh, glorify you and build your kingdom we pray in jesus name amen amen thank you brother also uh some of these questions were probably even addressed somewhat yesterday and uh So we may move over a few of them more quickly because of that. Uh, But uh, anyhow, here we go. So I'm going to read uh, two questions here, and they're going to be kind of answered simultaneously. First one is, how do you relate to people in the ministry who don't handle themselves like they should? For instance, anger, and they are not willing to acknowledge it. And then another similar question, how should we respond to wrong authorities, those who abuse their authority, who are abusive or oppressive, or who otherwise misuse their position and influence, especially parents and church leaders? We had talked a little bit about this a similar question yesterday. So for today, I'm just going to look to my panel, and they're going to give us just a little bit of a refresher on all of that. So, Well, what we discussed yesterday is we need to really be careful in challenging authority. Uh, Michael did not rebuke the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So this is a, a situation where you need not to rush into it. You need to do it very carefully and very respectfully. In fact, always respectfully. And what we said yesterday was you can make an appeal. You should get the counsel of your parents. You should get the counsel of some other people. Uh, and then you can make an appeal. And I liked what Brandon said last night. We always have a higher authority that we can appeal to. And I think we really should use that uh, opportunity to appeal to God. Um, when I think of this, I think of David, who was being pursued by Saul, and he had a chance twice to kill him, and he refuses, refused to do it. Uh, I think there's way too much disrespect and uh, too much, too, people too quick uh, to, to uh, uh, challenge authority. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying there's never a place to make an appeal, but I'm just pleading with you. I remember somebody raised this question at the Anabaptist Identity Conference one time, and the man answered it. Some youth had asked it, and they said, well, you have never been an authority, and authorities make mistakes, and authorities are human. So give your authorities a break 
<laughs> and, and treat them with a, a certain amount of understanding that they are not going to be perfect and uh, use some forgiveness and some forbearance with your authorities. But there is a place to make an appeal. If it's over the top, then you should counsel with parents and some other people and very cautiously uh, address the issue, but do it cautiously. Okay. Any other comments? All right. Okay. So our next question... Uh, and again, I'm going to uh, read two questions to get, uh, that relate to a similar subject. There are, uh, there are several times in the Bible where baptism was given immediately after belief in Jesus. Why do our churches wait so long? And then the next question, is baptism directly related with salvation? What is the correct biblical understanding. Maybe I'll just take a moment and see if any of you young men want to respond to any of that before I look to my panel. Right up here. And Do we have another microphone or is there just one today? When I was young, uh, earlier, like more younger teens, I really, really questioned that. It just seemed the Bible was really clear that they baptized as soon as they were born again. But I guess as I get older, I'm like, all these older men think different. So I'm, maybe my understandings of it are, are, are wrong. So that's, I guess in five years' time, I guess, I usually strongly believe that, you know, they were baptized right after they were born again. So why don't we do that? But I see what the older men say. I'm like, well, they must be right. <laughs> We have another one here? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I would maybe echo what my brother said. Um, you know, the Bible says, Repent and believe, and thou shalt be saved. Oh, no, repent and be baptized, and thou shalt be saved. I think there's one verse that says that. Um, so it almost seems to be part of the package. So I, too, have often wondered why we wait for a convenient time till we can do a multitude of, of baptisms rather than than doing it right at the moment. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing some things on that. Anyone else here? Up here? I can see what the two of you that already talked are saying, but I think some of the wisdom behind waiting a little while is because it's a very serious decision. And um, I think you're never going to regret that. Um, If if you go too soon on that, you're going to always regret it, I think. panel all right there's a number of uh, questions in this um, I think more spontaneous is probably better and I know we have talked about that of trying to be a little more spontaneous a couple of things come into play is specifically maybe some of our young people there have been parents who you know, they look at their young youngster and they say, well, you know, is it real or isn't it? And so they like to give it some time to see if there's actually fruits meet for repentance. That is not something new for our time. That has been down through the Christian church. If you read already in the martyr's mirror of a 13-year-old who was apprehended with a bunch of other Christians, and of course then baptism was the cutting line. And if you were baptized, then you got your head chopped off. And they said to him, well, why weren't you baptized? And he said that the ministers wanted to give him time for some growth before he makes this serious commitment. And they said, well, are you going to be baptized? He said, definitely. And they took his head off at 13 years old. So I think I think there should probably be a little bit more spontaneity, spontaneity or... Is that the right word? Spontaneity to that. Um, And yet there's a lot of practical things that come into play. 
And some of that is that the person who wants to be baptized or thinks about it, they don't step forward and ask. You know, there's just a lot of practical things. But I think we should, uh, we should probably move them closer together. Uh, a couple of other things to, I don't think we want to go to a place where we believe that if you're not baptized and you die, you go to hell. Um, one we could cite is the thief on the cross. And just because it was before Jesus Christ arose, I'm not sure that we can just write that off and say, no, nah, it was Old Testament. <clears throat> but I believe there's something to it. Uh, OB, uh Baptism is, is obedience. Baptism is a commitment. Baptism is a commitment not only to God and promises to God, but it's a commitment to the local body. Very important. <clears throat> uh, talking about different pouring versus immersion, uh, our churches have, over the years, never made a real specific big issue about that. And I appreciate that. Why do the Mennonites pour? I think a lot of them would point back to the Old Testament sprinkling. They sprinkle water on the utensils and a lot of things in the temple. And that's where that would come from. Uh, immersion seems to fit a little better with the whole idea of Jesus dying, going to the grave, and rising again. But you know, the Bible isn't that clear that we can build a doctrine and say it is the only way. And so I appreciate the willingness to have that uh, respect on either side. Uh, like we need to be careful with how much emphasis on the mode itself, but our emphasis should be on what is baptism pointing to and what is it. I know many men and women who are godly. Some have been poured and some have been immersed, and I haven't seen a spiritual deficit one or the other because of the way they were baptized. Maybe before he just goes on, Leonard brought another question in there that I hadn't read, and that's fine. It was oh, one. Hadn't read that one. Not that one. It's the one uh, on what is the. I put them together. Yeah, and let me just, uh, before you continue, the question was this What is the reason for pouring baptism versus immersion baptism? And the question uh, makes a differentiation between this person's background and the Mennonites. So Leonard answered that already. So I just wanted to give you that. Go ahead, Earl. Yeah, the, answering the question directly in the scripture, baptism was immediately after conversion or commitment to the Lord Jesus. And then when you look in the early Christian writings, you immediately come into where they had a period of instruction and the question would come, well, why did they, did they, were there some other factors on the ground that, that necessitated that change? Or were they actually departing from the pristine mo, uh, model? And that the question, except the, the Didache, the earliest, the earliest writing that we have after the New Testament, the Didache, you do first have instruction, then baptism in that little pamphlet, that little booklet. So, biblically, immediately, practice in the early church very quickly, instruction before baptism. So, there's, uh, in some ways, maybe not have a straight answer, but we have, to some degree, instruction before baptism. I would also add to that, the Great Commission says we're to baptize, and then we're to teach them all things. And... If we just baptize and they don't make a commitment to the local body, we can't do that. And we did have that. We used to baptize people occasionally, occasionally in circumstances where we thought it was warranted, uh, without them joining our church. And I think almost all those people were out there wandering around somewhere. We never were able to disciple them because they made no commitment. So I, I think it's important that there's a commitment made, whether it's before the baptism or after the baptism, to receive instruction from the person who baptized them. Uh, also in the Didache, there is a, a preferred method of immersion, but it says if immersion's not possible, then pour water on the head. So from the earliest part of the time of the church, uh, they probably did immersion as a preferred method, but pouring wasn't an acceptable form of baptism. So that is a valid form uh, according to the practice of the early church. 
And the idea that somebody's in bed with pneumonia, almost dead, and you build a tub beside the bed or haul in a tub and take this sick person and try to get them immersed, I don't think we serve that kind of God. Okay. As these brothers were talking, I just remembered, I remembered a situation. Uh, this had to do a little bit more with a, a child being on the younger side. Years ago, um, I was asked, or there was a, a fairly young person, I'm not remembering the age, I'm going to say, if I recall correctly, it could have been uh, eight years old, I'm not sure, could have been somewhere in that t- And I asked I ask that we would give them a couple of years, uh, that person, uh, a couple of years to just to develop a bit and and mature a bit and be cert- uh, just for a b- sake of better understanding what a baptism commitment is. And the father was in disagreement with me, and he got someone else to baptize his child. My understanding is that when that child was in their were in their teen years they asked to be rebaptized because they didn't feel like their first baptism was valid and uh, so i just give that as an example there are times when we do need to use wisdom we need to need to evaluate things and sometimes it can be okay to say you know maybe Maybe that child's a bit young yet. Maybe that person's uh, should grow a bit in his maturity of the faith and what it is and what what it means to follow Christ, which is discipleship and all those kind of things. Okay, moving on. All right, so we covered three questions there on baptism, and we have another question here that involves baptism, but then uh, the punchline is different. So, when someone breaks a baptism vow, they are excommunicated. But when someone who is married breaks a wedding vow, their partner is not allowed to take a break from them. Why is that? And I'm going to look to my panel for that one. Yeah, we're looking at the question and trying to understand exactly what the, where the question was. The one, okay, here we have two vows that are broken. The one, they separate, and the other, they don't. Why is that? And, well, the, the, the simple answer, of course, would be if you break a baptism vow, that obviously means that you actually are in sin of some kind and apparently not repenting that the Scripture says to put such a one out. So that would be, uh, but uh, always, always with the point of seeking reconciliation. So that the vow stands, the vow still stands, but the scripture says, "Put that person out, separate yourself from that person." And that is not the case in a partner, although that is an allowed. It's an allowed. Uh, Separation. In other words, if there's adultery or there's some situation, a partner may separate in certain cases, but they do not need to and are not commanded to separate. That's not a command to separate like it would be in the issue of sin. And again, the, the focus is always on the reconciliation, if possible. Uh, both of them are vows, or both of them are covenants. They are a commitment for life, and they can both be broken, but God deals with them in little different ways. Well, a covenant can be violated, but it can't be broken. A covenant is a perpetual promise. It has nothing to do with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> A covenant is a perpetual, and I think people get this wrong. I think they're starting to look at marriage as a contract. If you do your part, I do my. No, a covenant is a perpetual promise. It's a promise that never ends. No matter what anybody does, no matter what the circumstances are, you keep that covenant. 
It has nothing to do with circumstances. And I don't think we realize the strength of a covenant. A marriage is a covenant. A baptismal vow is a covenant. These are, these are perpetual promises that we have made that we will never break uh, legitimately. All through. All right, our next question. <clears throat> Why is hands-off courtship held so high? Shouldn't emotional purity be the focus as our actions stem from our hearts? Maybe I'll give just a moment for you young men. Do you have any thoughts there? Want to hear from the wisdom of the older ones? Okay. Look to our panel. Well, <coughs> excuse me. I'll give uh, four simple reasons that came to my mind. Number one, because it's wonderful. Been through it, been there, done that. Wonderful. Uh, it allows us to focus on other things other than the physical. Yes. Number two, um, we're not as spiritual as we think we are. <laughs> Ever heard that before? I'll let that one stop at that. Number three, Corinthians does say in Corinthians 7, 1, something about it's better for a man not to touch a woman. There's something there about the touch aspect until marriage. Number four, um, it was mentioned here. What does it say? Our actions stem from our hearts. Um, sometimes when you read things, you realize you must have done a really bad job at preaching, but I'll try to say something again. Our actions affect our hearts, and our hearts affect our actions, and our actions affect our hearts, and our hearts affect our actions. I would agree our primary focus does need to be on dealing with the emotions and our heart issues, and yet we can't separate that at all from the actual actions. All through. Okay, our next question, was there technology, phones, computers, etc., before the flood? <laughs> is, there, is there proof anywhere in history or the Bible? <laughs> Some use Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10 to prove that there was. <laughs> Y'all chuckling. Yeah. Anybody want to respond in my uh, brothers? I think it's a junk contract. Doesn't say anything about Noah taking along in the ark. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> Do we have any serious answers from my panel? <laughs> uh, this is it's uh, what the scripture says, and uh, is there anything new thereof that it may be said? See, this is new; it has already been of old time, which was before us, and that's the scripture, one scripture verse. And of course, it talks about. Uh, the sun rising, sun setting, the wind going around and around, the, the water's going to the sea. So it's just a continual, just a continual, just a continual. And it's the, it's someone who has taken pleasure to its nth degree and found himself very empty. And I don't think it has a whole lot to do with computers and phones before the flood. I, I don't think it applies to that. Um, See, is there anything else? 
Yeah, basically, I, I don't think that applies. And what happened before the flood, we know very little except what John D. said yesterday. And that was even a little bit of speculation exactly what happened with those angels and those giants and all that. But, but, uh, but it was a wicked world that was destroyed and very, very little archaeolog- archaeological evidence that we have that we know what happened. Well, here, Brother Earl, you answer this one. How would it change your life if you found out there was? (laughs) Not. (laughs) I would say, oh, there's a flood on the way. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Okay. Oh, we got something? Okay, yeah. Bring the microphone. I would just real quickly add, if we could prove that there was technology before the flood, we should not want any part to do of it with it. <laughs> you want to pass it back? Okay. All right. All through. Okay, very good. Maybe I'll just take a moment and make a comment on that as well. The verse there in Ecclesiastes, I was reminded of the verse that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, etc., etc. You know, the, the temptations that we as individuals face today are no different than the temptations of four and 5,000 years ago. Uh, back before the flood, the vehicles and the means that bring on some of those temptations and and the convenience of them and all those kind of things uh, have changed, but the actual things that men struggle with are the same. Uh, That's one one of the things I see in those scriptures. The basic framework of things, it's the same as it's always been. So, all right. <clears throat> Our next question. Is a short-term mission trip wasteful? Is it good to do short-term mission trips? Maybe we can hear from you, young men. Have any opinions or thoughts? Wisdom? Well, I've taken a few, and it can definitely be a pleasure. You could just go for pleasure. But I think it also gives you a perspective into a world different than our own to realize that not everyone lives with the conveniences that we have, and that can be a good thing. I just, um, I was in Haiti for a year, and I just came back, and I just know that the the natives there don't appreciate too much when people come over for short term, because they just get connected, you know, friendships, relationships, and then you leave. Mm-hmm. And they always say that we're never coming back. But um, I think it's, um, to have a longer term is, is much nicer for them, because it's more stable for them, I think. Any others? Okay. My panel. Um, It's already been touched on, I think, some of my thoughts here, but uh, the obvious answer is yes and no. Um, And so just to break that down a little bit, looking from both perspectives, and they were both already mentioned here, There's two perspectives. One is the place where you're going, and one is those of us who are going. So first, from the perspective of those of us going, it's actually been a burden on my heart at um, the looseness with which pleasure trips are being taken. And pleasure versus mission trips are getting merged, and you can hardly tell the difference sometimes. Um, That's a burden on my heart. I don't think that's helpful to the church, to us. I feel like that's very detrimental to us. It's moving in a very... A materialistic way when we 
um, for our pleasure, spend the time and energy to do it. And what's happening, again, as I said, mission trips and pleasure trips is it's getting merged, and it's kind of hard to tell the difference. <clears throat> so is it profitable um, on for us? That's my answer, no. On the yes side, yes, I feel it's profitable. <clears throat> I got to experience it, and I got some others. Uh, I know others had experience with short-term times that were revolutionary in my concept of life. It was already mentioned here. Life and the way I should live it and the needs of the world and what life's all about and what am I going to live for and what really matters in life and the way the rest of the world lives and all those concepts changing in my own heart and in the lives of an earnest individual. Um, I think there's blessing in that. On the side of uh, the location you're going, there's the negative and the positive also. Uh, many times people going over for short term don't understand what they're doing and what that says to the people they're doing it to. They don't understand actions, money, cultures, all those things, and hurt can easily be done by those of us going somewhere, doing things we don't realize what we're doing and what we're saying by what we're doing, and so it creates negative repercussions on the people we're going to. So is it hurtful to the other countries? Yes. The no side, is it hurtful? Can it be helpful? Yes. Um, if done right under authority and direction of those who know what's going on and it's done with a heart to serve and bless, whether it's physical aid things, whether it's English teaching and you're supporting people there long term, or there are a lot of different opportunities where you can go and be a blessing. Does that make sense? Yes and no on our perspective side and yes and no on the recipient side. Um, we need wisdom and help from people who understand some of those things and counsel as we do them. I've been in Haiti a number of times uh, doing pastoral teaching. Those were just like 12, 10, 12 days at a time. Uh, I wouldn't trade them for anything, but... As Brother Mick was saying, you know, not knowing the culture, not knowing the language, not knowing the people, it can be hurtful sometimes. And I'll just give you one illustration. I tried to learn some phrases to be able to greet the people as we go down the walk in the trails. And there were these two phrases in Creole that were fairly similar. And I didn't know that, I didn't get the difference. So we were walking the trail. And uh, this woman waves with her children by her, and I say the greeting. And my guide looks back at me and says, don't say that. And I'm like, well, what did I say? He said, just don't say that. I'm like, well, tell me what I said. And we were way down the trail until he finally told me. I thought I said something about good morning when I actually said behave yourself. <laughs> Hmm. All three. Okay. Our next question. When discipling someone, how do you walk beside them and help them if their struggles are things you never struggled with, such as in moral issues, specifically homosexuality? I think I'm going to look to my panel to uh, respond to this question. Well, obviously, we have to be able to help people with things we've never struggled with. I mean, I don't want to commit murder, so I know how to disciple someone who has committed murder. So, obviously, uh, we need to do that. Uh, I find that what you really need to do is listen carefully and take seriously what people say. If a homosexual says... I've had these urges ever since I can remember. You don't say, oh, no, no, God would never allow that to happen. Uh, you have to take that seriously and say, well, I'm not sure about that. But even if, you, even if that is the case, we all come to Jesus with baggage of all sorts. Alcoholics, habits that are hard to break, perhaps predispositions. Genetic research says that men, some men are born with a genetic predisposition to violence. They just were born with a genetic predisposition to get their jollies out of hurting people. Uh, so 
if you say that uh, you have to obey urges you've always had, then I guess we have to. Ex- oh well, no, no, no. That's that's hurting. I said that's not your point. Your point is if you're born with something, you can't help yourself, uh, and we don't believe that. We believe the gospel has the power to change us from where we are to where we God wants us to be. I never had this particular problem, but I do know what sexual temptation is. I mean, they, we're talking about similar things here, and I have to confront my temptation in that area the same way you have to confront yours. So I think the important thing is that we listen and we do take people seriously and we challenge them in a kind but firm, realistic way. And the Bible says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It doesn't say you have to experience the same things, but confess and open up. And so when people call and say, I have an addiction, I can't get victory over it, I said, is there anybody you have ever opened this up to who you confess and pray on a regular basis with? Well, no. Well, that's the prescribed method the Bible gives us uh, to overcome our sins. Not to go off, the temptation is to go off and hide, to be private, not tell anybody, I'm ashamed of it. But you have to overcome that. You have to get this out and have a sympathetic person that's not going to condemn you, but is going to challenge you and help you to work your way through this. So I think the important thing is not that we've had the same experience, but whether we're really willing to listen and take seriously what the other person says about his experience and try to help him work through it. I might just mention the emphasis shouldn't be on whether you experienced exactly the same thing I did. That qualifies you to counsel me. I think our goal should be to look for someone maybe that has more experience in life because there's all kinds of experiences come. They're not all the identical same, but someone with experience definitely understands uh, how to maybe counsel through some of those things. So rather than looking for someone who experienced the same thing, look for someone who experienced life more than us. It is wonderful. In fact, you just suggested something. You might be able to think of somebody who did have that experience. I mean, Patrick Matthews, some of you know him. Uh, He can counsel people on sex offenses because he experienced that, went to jail for it, and, and so on. So he can sit right with them. So if you haven't experienced it, there probably is somebody somewhere that did that you can refer them to, and that is helpful. Okay, our next question. What is right or wrong about makeup? How should the conservative churches handle this problem if it is wrong? How should us as youth deal or relate to our peers who wear makeup? Do you fellas fellas wear makeup? You want to give a word of wisdom regarding it? I can say this. None of my sisters have worn makeup, and Mama hasn't either. And she said it does not affect her relationship with Papa, and it does not affect the way our family functions, and she feels it's not necessary. On my side of things, I would rather see... I mean, from what it looks like to me... Something like this, putting on makeup, would be worrying about how you look. And that's not something we should be worried about. We should be more worried about whether or not we're serving God with our hearts. We should be worried about where our hearts are rather than where our looks are, if you might say that. Our focus needs to be in the right place. I would like to second what the brother had said. As we've heard earlier, if if there was a want for makeup, maybe our savor isn't the way it should be. Um, God also made us in his image. Now I know that all of our faces vary one to another, but at the same time, um, we don't do tattoos. So we're not going to cover up or alter the image he made us in. I'm not sure why. On the same principle, we would want to alter the way we look.
Anyone else? Okay, my panel. Yeah, I'd like to make a make some distinction between reasonable order and and make up for fashion. I um, I get eyebrows that one of the couple hairs grow really fast. If they would, if I let them grow, they wouldn't come to my ankles, but they'd be pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife reminds me, you got one growing out, so I clip it off. Okay, so there's proper care of your body in a, in a way to keep yourself presentable. That's different, though, than plucking eyebrows so that you look like the fashion models. Okay, there's a, there's a distinction there. Uh, it's the same way with someone has a cleft lick and you do cosmetic surgery to bring things to a, a more presentable way. Uh, even... Uh, braces on teeth is cosmetic. Uh, not always. Sometimes it's actually functional, but many times it's cosmetic. There is a place for that kind of thing. We're, we're, we're talking, and, and of course, where that boundary is, not everybody's at the same place. But now we talk about makeup. And of course, that takes a, lo- a lot of ways, of course, the eyeshadows and the, the rue on the cheek and the lipstick and the fingernails, and I don't know where all it goes. I'm going to pick out a few. Uh, you put rouge on the, on the cheeks, the ladies do. Or you put lipstick, or you wear heels. Heels is actually... All those three... Uh, let, me, let me go back. Um, try not to make this too long. Back when the Me Too movement started, and the men were really getting across the... Getting, Taken across the coals because they were acting improperly toward the women. This is this is high culture. Then someone dared to ask the question: What about the women that come with this rue on the cheek and lipstick and heels? Because all those are expressions of sexuality, and I won't go into details how that works. But uh, it it makes a woman more sexually. Uh, attractive when you do those kinds of things, and um, so yeah, that that includes heels, by the way, as not part of cosmetic, but part of fashion. So, uh, what the scripture says, of course, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, and so there you get a spirit that goes with it, and fashion, or rather, uh, makeup. It goes against that kind of thing. So there I have the balance between proper structure and order versus the vanity and the fashion and the pride that goes with makeup. Uh, the other questions, how should the conservative churches handle the problem if it's wrong? I guess we'd say, well, let's do what John D. said. Let's uh, say no. Let's... <laughs> And watch how should us as youth deal or relate to our peers who wear makeup? I don't know. I never um, had to do that, so I'm not sure if I have a clear answer on that, except to <laughs> exhort them in the scriptures and, and maybe have a conversation like this. Well, they're getting a mic. I'm while he's getting a mic, I might make this comment. There's that scripture that says, uh, the adorning, let it not be the outward of the plating of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on apparels, and you could put right in there the putting on of makeup, but let it be the inward man, the hidden man of the heart. I had to think of the story of Jezebel when Jehu was returning from killing Ahab and It says Jezebel painted her face. She was putting on makeup, and no doubt, quite a bit of it. And then I read in Revelations chapter 2, verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. 
And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. And so I think that is a very clear warning to us that makeup is not suitable. Um, so I would rather stay away from Jezebel, if I, if I may put it that way. Okay, thank you. Are we all done here? All right, we'll move ahead. <clears throat> Our next question references John chapter 6, verse 40. Do any of you brothers have your Bible open to that? Go ahead and read that verse, would you? John 6, verse 40. Okay, John 6, 40, it says, This is the will of, oh, excuse me, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son... And believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then over in John twenty twenty nine, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and yet have believed. So in light of those two scriptures, the question is this. What does it mean to see the sun? Or how do you see the sun? Is it important to see the sun or not? I think I'll just refer to my panel here on this one. Well, I think here in John 6.40, this is the will of him that sent me that everyone which seeth the sun. I think we would probably all agree that that would be by the eye of faith. Because no man, you know, as of today, we can't see Jesus and live. They saw him in their physical body, and Thomas did. So I think that is by the eye of faith, and I don't believe it's referring that somehow we have to see Jesus physically. Any other comments? I just thought of the idea of the word see might also mean perceive who he really is. So, and we perceive who he really is, don't we? As we have come to believe in him. All right. Our next question. The Lord's Prayer says, Lead us not into temptation. James says, Count it all joy when ye fall into divers' temptations. Is temptation a good thing or a bad thing? Do we want temptation? Our time is moving right along. I think I'm just going to refer to my panel for that. Well, I think the uh, word temptation sometimes means trial. And uh, trial is seen in Scripture as a good thing. It helps to grow us up. Paul says he glories in tribulation, which is similar, because he says it causes him to have patience, it causes him to develop character, it causes him to have hope, and it finally results in love. And so Paul says he glories in it. He gets a lot of mileage out of it. But in the Lord's Prayer, when it says, lead us not into temptation, that is followed by but. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one is really the way that should be translated. So when we're in the trial, there is this very great tendency in the middle of the trial to blame God or to blame other people. And I think that's what we're being asked, uh, 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 what we're asking. In the trial, help us not to do that. Help us not to blame God. Help us not to fall into sin, blaming other people and blaming God. But help us to endure the trial without falling into the hands of the evil one. But we're certainly not praying a deliverance from trials. I mean, uh, I was a school teacher and I gave people tests. And they thought they were trials and they thought I meant evil by giving them. Uh, But I'll tell you what my real motive was. It was to make them study hard so that they would learn. It was a good intention, but uh, they didn't always understand. And God lets us have trials because he wants to grow us up. In fact, that is the way we grow up. I look back on my life, and the, where I learned the most and made the most progress spiritually was, was I, when I was in a situation I really didn't want to be in. Uh, but Paul says, I learned to want to be in those situations, so I haven't quite gotten there yet. But I do pray that in that I will never blame God or blame other people. I'll, I'll endure the trial. Any other comments there?
All right. I think I'm going to strictly use my panel to work through the rest of them so that we don't run over time too much here. Okay. So the next one, what are some practical ways the Christian youth can shape his thought life in their daily life? Um, oh, just some quick thoughts. I think we need to remember thought life, uh, your thought life is mostly a result of your life. And so as we live life, we're helping to train our thought life. And so if we guide our life in the way we want it to go, it will begin doing that. And the thought life is a little bit like ruts in the road. Um, They're worn in. And so so if you find yourself with some areas where the ruts are going where they shouldn't, don't expect it to be fixed right away, but tackle it realizing you can get there and you can change the ruts. And real practically... um, Yeah, a few things come to my mind. I remember a time in my life when I was wrestling with some thoughts and some emotions and I was doing some roofing and I was a little bit off to myself at the time and I, every time some thoughts would come, I didn't want, I decided that day I was going to sing, I think it was All to Jesus I Surrender or something like that. And thoughts would come and people might not have known why I sang the same song all day long, but thoughts would come and all to Jesus I and I just over and over. Um... And turning my watch to beep, and as my watch beep, turning it to him. And, you know, lots of little things we can do like that. But again, the key is uh, may God help us guide our actions and then purposefully guide our thoughts. All through on that one? Okay. Our next question. What are some practical things a church can do to build the kingdom? Excuse me. What What are some practical things a church can do to build the kingdom up and their relationships together in daily life? So, two things there: the kingdom up and their relationship together in daily life. Um, I suppose the kingdom up would be. I'm I, at this. I'm going to take it as the, the church being the kingdom itself. Obviously, you can also then expand it. Um, the verse that I have here would be Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, where they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Uh, continued steadfastly in a doctrine that is actually living it. Um, practical thing you can do is live the doctrine. As we heard this week, to uh, live out the teachings and the lives of Jesus and the example and the teachings of Jesus together, that's a practical way. And then the fellowship, and that includes, I think, fellowship is together, but it also includes accountability and, and community together. And then the breaking of bread, of course, that, is, that is, could be the communion or it could simply be the meals and the visits together as a church. And then prayer, and of course that is prayer separately, but it also means prayer, sharing hearts together. Um, how you built your relationship together? Well, you, when you pray together and you share your hearts and your struggles and your visions and your goals and all those things together. So that verse would have basically everything that we would actually need and you can expand from that. Of course, then do things together, evangelism, community projects, or help each other in different projects that a family, one family or another one has. Some of my thoughts. All through. Okay, our next question. Did Sarah do the right thing in lying to Abraham? In Ephesians 5.22, wives are supposed to submit as unto the Lord. What would have been the right thing for her to do? I looked at my panel. Well, I think the specific incidents that's being referred to here is not Sarah lying to Abraham, but lying to others about her relationship with Abraham. Mm-hmm. 
Abraham asking her to lie for him. One of the uh, verses that come to mind that has helped me with some of these, how do you relate to some of the Old Testament? David had, you know, the kings were specifically told they're not supposed to multiply wives. They were not supposed to multiply uh, horses and those kind of things. David, he... uh, he had more than one wife. Solomon had more than one wife. Solomon had many, many, many horses. And, of course, we know it was to their detriment. But in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, referring to Paul talking about making images to better be able to worship God, he said this, And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. We are living under the new covenant. Jesus Christ has died. He rose again. And I believe that we are held accountable in a way that they weren't in the Old Testament. So I believe Sarah can be used as a beautiful model in the New Testament, even though she did what we shouldn't do today, and that is lie. So no, we can take it as a good model, very uh, her honor and respect of Abraham, but that does not call us to lie today. I, uh, I know I could talk about examples, we don't have time, but real quickly here, I think it's good for a wife to protect and honor her husband and some of his faults that not everything gets public, but there are some things that she should not keep quiet. If there are things happening in the home, whether he's sinning in a way that the, that the church should know or whether he is violating some things in a home, she, she, is, account, she is responsible to, uh, to let the right people know. I would just make this observation. Abimelech really was upset that this happened, and he implied that if she'd have told the truth, or Abraham would have told the truth, he wouldn't have done what he did. So it did defeat its purpose. Okay. All right, our next question. How can we guide our love for the things of God and not for material things such as vehicles, sports, or making money? And live in the world making money without being of the world and loving the world. Well, the Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So you make the decision not to have that stuff and your affection goes where your investment goes. If your investment is down in the middle of the city helping poor people and you're sacrificing and giving all you can give and you're down there all the time and that's where all your time and effort and money goes... You'll have an affection for the people in the middle of the city. It's just that simple. Our affection goes where our investment is, where your treasure is. It doesn't say where your heart is. That's where your treasure will be. It says where your treasure is. That's where your heart's going to be. And the Bible says set your affection on things above. So it tells us we have control over our affections. The things we do, the things we say generate our loves and our affections. So do the right thing, make the right choices, and your affections will follow. Okay, we have one more question. How strictly should a kingdom Christian honor the government? In number, and several examples here, in traffic laws and in obeying lockdown suggestions, etc. Well, one of the things I want to be known for is obeying the laws. I want to be known for that. I want to have a spirit that says, I want to obey in every area possible. But the argument then comes, what about some of these very practical things that are asked? And when it actually comes into affecting, you know, as far as our relationship with God, obedience to God. And that's where it gets a little bit difficult sometimes to know where to draw the line. I know with this uh, social distancing, mass wearing, and all of that, uh, numerous ones came out at a little different place with it. And, of course, my appeal has always been let's really do have lots of grace for each other. 
let's observe in each other that heart that wants to obey wherever they can. You know, there is a difference between wanting to obey, desiring to obey, and just having a carelessness. So I don't know that we can answer specifics, but let's be known for obedience to the law. comments on the matter of uh, possessions I always like to quote what they said about John Wesley when John Wesley died he left a shabby coat a tattered bible a battered hat and the Methodist church Amen. All right. We ran two minutes over. Praise God. Well, thank you. Thank you, brothers, for taking the time to respond to all these questions. And uh, I think we'll dismiss you all. Be back in, uh, well, let's be back here at 345, just about eight minutes or so, or rather 12 minutes. So, your excuse.